Thanks so much for choosing our podcast. Before you start this episode, this is Kellen Erskine from the future. If you're listening to the book pile for the first time, I highly recommend starting on a later episode after we hit our stride. Some of my all-time favorites are when we cover the books The Hunger Games, 1984, and The Roasts of the Da Vinci Code, or any of the Twilight Roasts. If you're here because you already like the podcast and want to binge from the beginning, then thanks again. New episodes every Monday. Hey everyone, is it better to know a lot about one thing or to know a little about a lot of things? The basic premise of range is that we live in a world that is increasingly specialized and that in that world there are more and more benefits to being a generalist. And this is the book pile. So I love a book that will change completely how I think on a subject. How to Change Oil for Dummies. That was another one. Uh, but this... What were your preconceived notions on changing oil before? <laughs> it's much different. Like, when you hear that phrase, you initially think that oil is wearing clothes. So <laughs> Range is one of those books because, and I think I represent most people who haven't read this book, I had this belief that in order to master a skill, you had to start it from the time that you were three. Tiger Woods started golfing when he was two. And sure. then you just sort of have these natural gifts that allow you to excel in that field. So then if you haven't started a skill by the time you are 15, 20, that right. ship has sailed. But this book changed all of that thinking. And actually, it made things worse for me because I, I guess there was some comfort in thinking that I was way past my prime for all of these other improvements. And it turns out, <laughs> yeah, when, looks like once I you find out you're not past your prime, it's like, oh, so I, so I got to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But one of the biggest takeaways from the book is never feel like you're behind because whatever your breadth of experiences or, or whatever your odyssey is that's brought you to where you are in terms of your current skill set, all of those experiences feed in in some way to your modern day expertise. All right. So without further ado, here are five lessons that we took from range. All right. Lesson one. There's a difference between kind learning environments and wicked ones. Ooh. Chess, golf, and firefighting are all similar because those are the three things that I like to do on the weekends. Um <laughs> So David Epstein tells a story about a Hungarian dude in the mid-20th century who wanted to create super geniuses to the point where the woman who ended up being his wife, the first date that he went on, he told her, I want to have six children and I want all of them to be geniuses. <laughs> so I guess that pickup line worked for him. I wonder how many times before he, he tried that out, but maybe just throw that on, on your Tinder profile. He ended up having three daughters, and he started teaching them chess at a very young age. He hired chess masters, chess tutors to teach them as they were growing up, and all three of them ended up becoming famous chess masters themselves. And so he thought that he had, he had proved this theory. This is what I used to believe, too, that if you just start on something when you're young and you have a knack for it, then you're just automatically going to be successful at that thing. But it doesn't apply to everything. And chess belongs to this category that he described as a kind learning environment. So he talks about this basic dichotomy between what he calls kind learning environments and wicked learning environments. Kind learning environments are very narrowly constrained domains where you have a lot of stability – 
you get a lot of feedback. And so the more you practice, the better your intuitions get in that field. So that includes things like chess. It includes things like firefighting and various sports, things where the conditions don't change that much and you get quick feedback. On the flip side, you have things that he calls wicked learning environments, environments where you're not getting a lot of feedback or there's just so much variability that it's really hard for your intuitions to become valuable over time. So that can include things like being a therapist, being a doctor, if you're only seeing your patients every three months or so, just all these environments where you're not getting the strengthening of your intuitions that you would get in a kinder learning environment. So a kind learning environment has predictable consequences. But most of the world, especially the world of creativity and innovation, it is not predictable. He brings up how Watson, the Jeopardy supercomputer champion who had a flawless record on Jeopardy, they brought him into a cancer research facility thinking that Watson could apply his uh, supercomputing skills to curing cancer, but it was a disaster. (laughs) One of the researchers later said the difference between Jeopardy and curing cancer is that in Jeopardy, we already knew all the answers. And Mm -hmm. with curing cancer, we still don't even know what the right questions are to ask. The thing I love about the naming of Watson is that they took a book about a genius character and named the supercomputer after the dumb character. (laughs) Like, imagine a supercomputer named the Ron Weasley. (laughs) I love imagining like what happened that day that they brought him in. All those scientists in the lab are so excited. But Watson, all he's been programmed to do is win at a game show. So they're like, all right, what do you got for us? So they have their clipboards out. And Watson's like, what is chemotherapy? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, no, like use your supercomputer brain to come up with some answers. And Watson's like, Thank you, Alex. I'll take lymphoma for 500. <laughs> One last thing that I think is worth noting, too, is that it doesn't matter if someone is a prodigy. If you're a pianist at eight years old, you're playing hot cross buns, and this prodigy is playing the Rachmaninoff 5. Eventually, if you're both putting in the practice, both of you could still get into Juilliard. Like you'll meet up at some point. You might not be famous. Mm -hmm. You might not be on America's Got Talent as a toddler, but you could still both end up playing for the Philharmonic Mm -hmm. when you're 25. I think the basic argument that he makes is getting a head start on the skill that other pianists are going to learn anyway doesn't end up being as much of a head start as you might think. So don't be proud of your gifted child. All right, lesson two. When you follow your curiosity into something useless, often it's not useless. And you can just ask my mom. She's a humanities major. So for (laughs) decades, there were like three scientists studying something called retroviruses. These were viruses that never made anyone sick. They didn't really seem to do much, but there were these scientists who just out of curiosity had labored in obscurity working on this very specific kind of virus. And then the AIDS epidemic hit in the 80s, And we learned, okay, HIV is a retrovirus. So all of a sudden we had this knowledge ready to go of of all these tools for how to, you know, treat a retroviral illness. And we only had them ready because these three people were laboring in obscurity following their curiosity. It's a good thing that uh, widespread viruses don't exist anymore. Yeah, can you imagine? (laughs) What a bad year Uh, this could have been. (laughs) Right. 
But once you notice this pattern, you kind of see it everywhere where there are these breakthroughs of people who worked on something that at first seemed useless, but because they followed that curiosity, all of a sudden a use cropped up for that thing later. Or another example is Richard Feynman, the scientist. He's in this cafeteria. He sees someone throw a wobbly plate in the air. And for fun, he started calculating, why does the wobble travel faster than the actual rotation of the plate? He's just doing this calculation for fun. But solving that seemingly useless math problem just for fun was the thing that led him to the ideas that later earned him the Nobel Prize. And so, so you just the see moral over- of that story is that some of these everyday things that all of us do for fun could actually be very important <laughs> right. theories. <laughs> but the takeaway for me is sometimes when you follow your curiosity into something that seems useless, it may not be useless. And I write that down so that I think of it every day when I get out of bed to do comedy. <laughs> So I've kind of noticed that in my own life where oftentimes I'll have something that I'm really interested in, but I can't justify the time. I love music, but a few years ago, I still didn't have a keyboard in my house because I thought, oh, I need to be focusing on my job and, you know, advertising. And so finally I cracked and I bought a keyboard. And then like the very next week, I ended up composing a song for one of our ads. And so this thing that I had thought was kind of useless and ancillary to my main job, as soon as I gave this thing I was passionate about focus it ended up contributing to my my main job. I love that that sentence is usually when people say I broke down. It's usually like, <laughs> <laughs> I broke down and finally tried cocaine. But you were like, I broke down and bought a piano. Don't judge me. <laughs> Fun fact, Dave also performed and recorded our the theme song to this podcast for now. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, until we find something better. Even other things that seem even less useful. So around the time The Last Dance came out, my roommate and I started getting really into basketball. And it seemed so useless, but just fun to me. But as I paid attention to it, as I was learning how to get better at basketball, I was also learning how to get better at other things, like my main jobs in writing, comedy, advertising, etc. So honestly, I think almost anything can pay off, I think. The last time that I ever played basketball, I was 21 And a few of my friends were playing, buddies of mine. I never played, but they were going to go play one day. I decided to join them just for the social part of it, but I've always been so bad at all sports. And at one point I had the ball and there were like three guys guarding me. I didn't know what to do with the ball. So Why were there three guys guarding you? Keep the three guys trying to get the ball because I was just standing there and more more of them (laughs) just came up. I panicked. I didn't know what to do. So I threw the ball straight up in the air, (laughs) like a Hail Mary, literally a Hail Mary, hoping that people on my team would get it. (laughs) And I remember one of the guys who was not like within that, the little circle of guys around me, somebody outside of that circle goes, what happened? Like, is everything okay? (laughs) Like, it was such a mystery. And I had no good explanation. And, uh... That was the I last like that time at I 21, ever basketball. At 21, you were good enough to draw the triple team, but bad enough that your evasive maneuver was to throw the ball straight in the air. <laughs> One other example of how I've seen this apply in my own life, and this will say a lot about me, so I'm just going to storm into the story. Last year, I was playing Axes and Allies with my brothers, and I do not like it as a game. But what I did like, I was like, oh, I think I could build on an Excel sheet a probability model of how to predict whether you're going to win or lose a certain battle. So I spent hours working on this model for this game that I hate. It was the only thing I enjoyed about the experience. 
And I thought it was just like this useless, fun thing. But then the next year, my sister and her husband, they were trying to match into their rotation for med school. And there's kind of this like prisoner's dilemma aspect to the matching, where depending on what you choose as your first and second choice and what other people choose can have this very big impact on where you end up. And it turned out that this stupid probability model I'd made for Axis and Allies was actually really helpful in allowing them to make their best choice. And so just increasingly, I've found like there's no effort that's wasted. All right, number three, learn from other fields. So in 1989, there's this huge Exxon Valdez oil spill, which how come Exxon never gets credit for all the oil they didn't spill? (laughs) Happens in 1989, huge oil spill. About 20 years later, it's still not cleaned up. There's still about 32,000 gallons of oil on the coast of Alaska. And the problem is that when oil mixes with water, it gets really thick. It becomes like this chocolate mousse. And when you're in a cold place like Alaska, that gets so much worse. So the issue you run into as you're trying to clean up this oil is that when you have these recovery barges full of this sludge, how do you then get the oil out of those barges? So the people tasked with cleaning this up, they launch an incentive prize, $20,000 if you can solve the problem. And what's interesting is that the solution didn't come from chemistry or from physics. It actually came from construction. When construction workers don't want concrete to harden, they just touch it with this vibrating rod and it instantly becomes a liquid. And it turns out that this same method also works great for oil spills too. Here's this instance where the seemingly unrelated field had a solution for this huge problem, and we wouldn't have found it if we hadn't been crossing over into other fields. You see the same pattern over and over. So for instance, the typewriter was inspired by the piano. You know, you touch a key and it makes this hammer strike. The printing press was inspired by the wine press. You press down on this wooden board, and instead of crushing grapes, it presses paper against metal lettering. The escalator started out as an amusement park ride at Coney Island, which the generation that thought an escalator was a cool ride... No wonder they liked baseball. <laughs> like, I think they did prohibition because they were like, we don't need booze now that we can ride stairs. <laughs> Here's what I learned from Moneyball. Baseball is so boring that it gets more interesting when you add math. <laughs> you said that the escalator was a ride or inspired mm-hmm. by a ride. It was a ride. And then it was transformed into the modern usage. That's so fun. I would love to like take pictures of people right as they arrived at the top of an escalator. Take their picture. And be like, you should have seen the expression on your face. <laughs> this is $12 for a 4 by 6 And if you did anything interesting on the escalator, your photo is washed out. <laughs> you ever notice that? You do anything like remotely funny and they don't give you your photo. <laughs> And then you're like, I just stuck my tongue out on a violent ride for four minutes because I wasn't exactly sure where the cameras were for no reason. (laughs) I once went on, I love Splash Mountain. The last time we went to Disneyland with my family, everything was shutting down. My baby was asleep in his stroller and I just, I wanted to hit it one more time. So I ran to Splash Mountain and I ended up in that single rider's line. And I'll never do this again because I sit in the back and then it's like three people in front of me who clearly all you know know each other but it's odd when you're with strangers so none of us are really saying anything but they had obviously set up something funny to do with amongst themselves <laughs> so we're just sort of silently <laughs> doing this ride and then we go on it and then when all of us got off to look at the pictures the three of them they brought props with them like it, you're not supposed to do this 
but one of them had pulled out this tiny, it looked like a ping pong table. And then the other two had paddles that they had pulled out and there was like a <laughs> ball glued to the net. So it looked like they were in the middle of a ping wow. pong game. And then there was just me like completely stone faced because I was trying not to make a sound <laughs> while I went down the waterfall. <laughs> so I don't know if that made it worse or better. But now it looks like it looks like the whole scene was on purpose. This bored guy watching ping pong. <laughs> this wasn't on a ride, but I did do this skydiving. I went skydiving and I folded up a dollar bill and I wrote my email on it and said, Hey, I'm skydiving. Email me if you get this. And then I threw it as I jumped and someone found it and emailed me and was like, Hey, why wasn't it a 20? <laughs> and then then 10 years later, someone else found it and they seem to be English second language, but they also emailed about like, oh, hey, I found the dollar. You know, you don't actually have to go skydiving to do that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> now I feel like an idiot. <laughs> anyway, the broad idea here is the more you learn about other fields, the more you're able to take the lessons from those other fields and apply them to whatever you're working on. There's this great quote from Mike Schur, who's, you know, the creator of Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He says, Writing room should ideally be like the X-Men. Lots of different weird mutants with specific voices and talents. If everyone on your staff is an improv performer from Chicago or a sci-fi nerd from an Ivy League school or a stand-up, you'll only get the specific kind of joke that that group provides. Then there's also the fact, there's that stat he talks about how when you compare Nobel Prize winners to their peers, they're much more likely to have some kind of artistic hobby, which... Me, I like imagine Malala writing like really dark emo poetry, <laughs> like a sad dark room, no way out. But there's the fact that, you know, like Einstein famously played the violin, that kind of thing. Van Gogh is probably my favorite story as far as other experiences that seem to be unrelated all coming together. To mm -hmm. So as a child, he loved the outdoors. He loved insects and long walks. He didn't really draw that much, but when he did, it was like animals. Um, but then as a teen, he worked as an art dealer. So not an artist, but he would sell art uh, until he eventually got fired from that job later, like in his 20s. And it was it wasn't until his early 30s that he started painting, and he only mm -hmm. painted for a few years. But in that time, he then took experience from all of these other fields and was able to create things that he otherwise would not have been able to. Some of the most valuable pieces of art in history. Your outside interests, on top of making your work better... I think they also just contribute a little bit more to your happiness. There's this quote I really like from Bertrand Russell. He says, The secret of happiness is this. Let your interests be as wide as possible. There is no proof either that strawberries are good or that they are not good. To the man who likes them, they are good. To the man who dislikes them, they are not. But the man who likes them has a pleasure which the other does not. To that extent, his life is more enjoyable and he is better adapted to the world in which they both must live. The more things a man is interested in, the more opportunities of happiness he has. Mm. Unlike Tiger Woods, who started golfing when he was like two, Roger Federer played a lot of different sports. He tried a lot of different things and kind of gravitated toward tennis really late in his teenage years. And then obviously ended up being arguably the greatest tennis player of all time or, or tied for that position. Never heard of him. <laughs> It's amazing to me. Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic are arguably the best three tennis players of all time, and they're all playing at the same time. They're so good that only this year did someone born in the 90s win a Grand Slam. So the best thing you can possibly do in tennis is win breakfast at Denny's? <laughs> yeah. 
one of my favorite passages from the book is about this match quality principle. He says that Van Gogh was an example of match quality optimization. He tested options with maniacal intensity and got the maximum information signal about his fit as quickly as possible and then moved to something else and repeated it until he had zigzagged his way to a place no one else had ever been and where he alone excelled. All right, lesson four. Be a fox, not a hedgehog. So this idea comes from a quote by Isaiah Berlin. Well, if you play uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, you get to be both. (laughs) So the idea comes from this quote from Isaiah Berlin, where he says, the fox knows many tricks, the hedgehog knows but one. So to basically explain it, there was this researcher named Philip Tetlock. There is this researcher, he's still alive. And he was looking at the science of expertise because he wanted to see how accurate are the predictions that so-called experts make in, for instance, the political sphere. And the first thing he found was that actually those predictions are really bad. The famous headline was that they're about as good as chimps throwing darts at a dartboard, which was his famous like inflammatory headline. And which was also a very unsuccessful interactive exhibit at the L.A. Zoo in the 1950s. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of being hustled by chimps who would wait until you put bananas on the line. (laughs) But the closer he looked at the data, the more interesting it became. So first he found that the more an expert appears on TV, the less accurate they were. And the takeaway seemed to be the more sensational or the more interesting sounding your takes are, often the less accurate you are as a projector. And he he started to divide the experts into two camps, hedgehogs and foxes. Hedgehogs were people who kind of have one big idea. Maybe that's socialism, conservatism, liberalism, libertarianism. Or spinning really fast to collect as many gold rings as possible. (laughs) Right. Big idea people. And then the foxes were those who were more multidisciplinary. So people who learn from a lot of different fields. And the interesting thing was that the foxes were much more accurate than the big idea people. And not only that, but over time, the foxes became more accurate as they kind of honed their models and learned from their mistakes. And the hedgehogs became less accurate because the more educated they got, the better able they were to justify the viewpoint that they already had. There's this quote from the philosopher Alan who says, nothing is more dangerous than an idea when a man has only one idea. (laughs) All right. Lesson five. Try mixed practice. In other words, don't practice... Practice with men and women. (laughs) Don't practice too narrowly. For knowledge to be flexible, it needs to be learned in varied conditions. Oh man, I didn't write a joke for this. If you don't have a joke, Mm. let's just laugh track this part. (laughs) (laughs) What if you just say something straight up and then a laugh track plays? Or just play this recording of us strategizing about including the laugh track. That would be so funny to bring in a a laugh track for one moment for no reason. (laughs) So he calls this interleaving, which is a very forgettable word. So I prefer mixed practice. (laughs) Shaquille O'Neal was like notoriously bad at free throws. Like he looked like me when three people are trying to steal a basketball from me. So there was a, a sports commentator who made the suggestion that instead of Shaq like just practicing free throws, w- what he really needed to do was practice a foot in front of the free throw line and a foot in back of it to learn the motor modulation that he would need. They did this experiment with two groups of pianists, which is just a fun word to say. They wanted to see how each group would improve at a 15 key jump. So if you spread out like your thumb and pinky on the piano, the average 
average person can reach seven or eight keys. So a 15 key jump, it's bigger than the span of your hand. It's a difficult skill. They wanted to see who could improve on it. And so they had one group make that 15 key jump. That's all they practiced for an hour a day for a full month. And then they had another group practice not only the 15 key jump, but also a 12 key jump and a 22 key jump. And what they found is that the latter group improved at the 15 key jump, even though they were practicing the 15 key jump specifically, much less than the group that was exclusively practicing that jump. And they improved more, right? Right. (laughs) All right, just to recap our favorite lessons from range. One, when you follow your curiosity into something useless, often it's not useless. Two, there's a difference between a kind learning environment and a wicked learning environment. Three, learn from other fields. Four, be a fox, not a hedgehog. And five, try mixed practice. And if you want to learn more about becoming a generalist in a specialized world, read Range by David Epstein. (laughs) Hey, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Book Pile. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We would do the same for you. 